0: We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough, We pet our neuroses till they curl up.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Sarah Willie hill This is Sophie Dodds. And I'm Willa Bews. And this is Demons and
0: Dims.
1: Welcome to this very special bonus slash mini-sode that we are doing. I have two amazing musicians slash wonderful people from Storm the Palace who are the brilliant band who have given us our one of their songs to use for our intro music and we are going to be doing slightly different things this week and looking at two different female musicians and then talking a little bit more about Storm the Palace. Sophie, do you want to introduce
0: yourself? Sure. I'm Sophie. I play guitar and sing and write songs for Storm the Palace. I live in Edinburgh and I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> That's good.
2: <laughs> I am Willa and I play bass in Storm the Palace, mostly because Sophie chased me up Leaf Walk with a bass until I got tired out and then she handed me the bass. And sometimes <laughs> she I write she lyrics You well. also tell a word. lot of lies. I also tell a lot of lies. And I'm from.
0: And she also writes lyrics, which is the truth.
2: Yes. Yeah, mm. actually. Although the lyrics are not necessarily true. No.
0: And we <laughs> and... also, also do a lot of backing vocals and occasional lead vocal.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I'm from Vermont, and I also live in Edinburgh, about a mile away from Sophie's house. So we live in. <gasps> oh,
0: each shut other. up. Lily. And that's Lily. She's the band manager. She gets very worried when she thinks we're straying into dubious legal territory. <laughs>
1: I am so excited to have you guys both on here, not only because I love your music, but also because it turns out you like the podcast. We do. And if I can tell everyone, one thing you are working on right now has been a song, which I have seen, a guess, a rough cut of, about our episode on Hedy Lamar. Correct. So, which... I think is fucking brilliant. So
3: yay!
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Today, we're going to talk about two different female musicians. Can you please tell me who each of you has picked and why you've picked them? And then we'll begin.
0: So I've picked Dory Previn, also known as Dory Langdon or Langan, who is a lyricist first and foremost, but also had roughly 10 year career as a singer songwriter. I actually only discovered Dory's work last year and fell in love with it very quickly and identified with her in a lot of ways.
2: And I've never heard of Dory Previn, so I'm looking forward to this. I have chosen for my lady Carol Kay, who is the goddess of the bass guitar um, and has been featured on roughly 10,000 recordings as the one of the best bass players in the world. And I can guarantee to anybody who's listening to this that they will have heard her play. So this is going to be good. She is Amazing. And in honor of her, I'm wearing bright red lipstick, even though it's a podcast. Aww.
1: <laughs> we, should have, we should have coordinated. I'm actually wearing a bright red bow in my hair. Aww. So I did not do any research about these women because I thought that would keep it fun and exciting. But I did spend a lot of time yesterday listening to their music. And I am super impressed and really excited to talk to you both about their lives and about I people should know about them. So I think we have agreed through the scientific method of flipping a coin (laughs) that Sophie is going to go first. So let's talk about Dorothy.
0: Yes. Ah, Yeah, I forget that Dorothy is actually the full name. Right. (laughs) So Dory, as she was better known, was born in 1925 in New Jersey. Her a maiden name was Langan. The most notable incident from her childhood that should be mentioned was that her father, who had been traumatized during World War One, and oh, although I haven't read this, it sounds like he possibly suffered neurological damage in addition to psychological damage, went through mm-hmm. a period of keeping the family hostage in an attic um, for several months at gunpoint.
1: Oh my god, in their own attic? Yeah. Right.
0: Um wow. Which she revisits in a later song. I'd quite like to quote some lyrics from this song, but I don't if that's jumping the gun a bit. Please do. This song is called Daddy in the Attic and it goes, with my daddy in the attic, that is where my dark attraction lies, with his madness on the nightstand, placed beside his loaded gun, in the terrifying nearness of his eyes, with no window spying neighbours and no husbands in the future to intrude upon our attic, past the stair, where we'll live on peanut butter spread across assorted crackers and he'll play his clarinet when I despair.
1: That's really dark and evocative.
0: I think it kind of sets the scene quite well for what you can expect which is these dark introspective confessional lyrics with this really kind of twisted humor thread through them i'll I'll move on to a bit more about the rest of her life um oh actually i was also going to say i feel like she's quite a relevant person to be talking about right now because there's a lot of themes of claustrophobia and obviously trapped in a house which we can all relate to yeah i'm
1: (laughs) really suddenly very grateful for the my beautiful view and window right now I can't imagine being quarantined in an attic.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: Peanut butter crackers are not great either. I don't know. I'm a a big fan, actually.
0: (laughs) Anyway, she uh, she began her showbiz career as a chorus line dancer and singer, which is when, according to Wikipedia, she started to write songs. In the late 1950s, she began working as a lyricist for film at MGM Studios. And this is where she met and started collaborating with Andre Previn, who who she married in 59. He's probably a lot more famous than her. If you Google him, he comes up as a pianist, composer, arranger, and conductor. Probably best known as a conductor. I've
1: never heard of him, if that makes any oh. sense, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Dory would be thrilled by that. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, he's pretty famous. And obviously she takes his name and is best known as Dory Previn. I mean, he actually only died last year in 2019. Is Dory still alive? She died in 2012, aged 87. You you may be able, well, no, you won't be able to work it out from this, but she was um, a little bit older than him. I think four years older than him. Which sort of becomes relevant in her later songwriting as well. So they were, they collaborated on a lot of songs that were used in films. She wrote the lyrics, he wrote the music. Some of these songs were Oscar nominated and many were recorded by some super famous people who even you will have heard of, Sarah, <laughs> such as Dorothy, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra.
1: Who's Frank Sinatra? Just kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she. I think this is an interesting moment to mention that she had a morbid fear of air travel, which was probably one of the reasons she didn't become as famous as he did, because he was jetting off around the globe, and she wasn't. And it's not, you know, it doesn't take a massive leap of the imagination to suppose that this was due to the claustrophobia that from her childhood experience. She had a pretty difficult time with the, her mental health. In, she had a first breakdown in 1965. And in 1969, she discovered that Andre had been having an affair with actress Mia Farrow. I kind of love this story because, so Mia Farrow is 20 years her junior, Dory's junior. And it's a wonderful sort of cycle of betrayal here because Andre Previn left Dory Previn for Mia Farrow and then 10 years later Mia Farrow left Andre Previn for Woody Allen and then Uh, about 15 well 13 years after that Woody Allen left Mia Farrow for her adopted daughter Jesus Christ it just gets worse and worse and worse the further down (laughs) the rabbit hole you go and what I really love about this is that you know Dory and Andre divorced in 1970 and that year she uh, released her first solo album with a song on it called Beware of Young Girls which was basically the story of Mia Farrow befriending the family and then you know Pinching her husband from under her nose, and in this song she says she consoles herself by saying she will leave him one thoughtless day, which indeed she did. So Dory first saw how the whole thing would play out. Pretty sure she she would have chuckled quietly and darkly to herself when she heard about how the whole Mia Farrow Woody Allen Suni Previn thing played out, especially as actually Suni had the name Previn, so the whole thing sort of came full circle, really. Oh wow! In 1970, so the same uh, year she divorced Andre Previn, she had her second breakdown, which sounds like it was a bit more serious than the previous one, um, she underwent electroconvulsive therapy for this. Oh, that, that's never good. And this featured a lot in her some of her later writing, particularly a song called My Whisper, which is a really chilling first-hand account of what it's like to lose your mind. And it kind of plays on, she talks the psychedelia imagery of the time, like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, except it's it's not you know drug-induced psychedelia, it's genuine psychosis. I should mention that she's written two autobiographies, so there is plenty of information out there. And what's quite interesting is that they were both written before she was particularly old. The first one was written in 76 Midnight Baby. And the second one was published in 1980. The second one is called Bogtrotter, an autobiography with lyrics. Oh my so, god, that is the <laughs> best name. Bogtrotter. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a reference to her Irish heritage, apparently, because uh, Irish people were called bogtrotters, apparently.
1: Okay, wait, wait, Are we talking about bog as in, like, the geographical feature? Or are we talking about bog as in, like, slang for, you know, toilet? Yeah.
0: Uh, I think it's a geographical feature. Okay,
2: it's, it's. Oh, but there's that kid in Matilda who's named Bruce Bogtrotter, the one that has to eat the whole chocolate cake, and that must be oh, the same kind true.
0: Coming back, where were we? 1970. Divorce, breakdown, electroconvulsive convulsive therapy. And 1970 also marked the beginning of her career as a solo singer-songwriter, which is the period of her life I'm most interested in. What I also find particularly interesting is that she was 45 in 1970, which is a lot older than most people are when they try and launch a music career. Oh, that's great. And as a nearly 35-year-old singer-songwriter, feels <laughs> to me greatly, although God knows I've been at it a lot longer than that. And she was amazingly prolific. She released yeah. six solo albums in the 70s. And obviously, having previously written lyrics for films, all of a sudden she started writing about her own life, so they became much more introspective, much darker, and she was also interested in, in other misfits. There are certain running themes through her lyrics, and in my opinion, much better. And obviously, she was writing her own music at this point, so she wasn't collaborating with Andre Previn anymore. So all the all the music on her solo albums are, is written by herself, and in my opinion, is also much better than a lot of the music that um, other people wrote for her. But she wasn't just doing this, she was doing all sorts of other things. In 1973, she wrote a screenplay a tv movie called third girl from the left oh i've heard of that kind of semi-autobiographical yeah and it featured quite famous people tony curtis and kim novak in the lead roles i tried to watch it online and the only version i could find was maddening because it made it up to about 10 minutes before the end and then cut out (laughs) so i don't actually know how it ends i don't know if i'd recommend it. it it's interesting if you're interested in dory previn but it's flawed and the main character who's sort of based on dory is really annoying and I was just thinking about why because she shares many of Dory's um, autobiographical details she's a chorus line dancer and she's treated very badly by her long term partner but unlike Dory she doesn't seem to have anything else going on she just has these failed dreams whereas what really redeems Dory Previn is her art and the fact that no matter what she was going through she kept expressing it and Hmm. um, channeling it she did still continue to work on music for film and TV she wrote the song for Last Tango in Paris in 1973 eventually she overcame her fear of flying enough to start touring her material. As I mentioned previously, she published two autobiographies in the late 70s. In 1983, she. So in the 80s onwards, she sort of starts moving away a bit from songwriting. She's still doing it occasionally when she's less focused on sort of her own confessional songwriting, which would imply I suppose that you know that, that her period of catharsis had kind of come to an end. But she did things like, she got very concerned about issues to do with nuclear war and the environment. She wrote and appeared in a musical statement about this called August 6th 1945, obviously a reference to the bombing of Japan. She won an Emmy in the 80s for her TV songs and in 1984, we have our happy ending here, she remarried an artist and actor called Joby baker um who was an actor and an artist she as i say she died in 2012 and she was busy doing stuff right through the end of her life as well as songs she wrote short stories she lectured and in 1997 um rather surprisingly she collaborated with andre previn again so talking about their artistic relationship dory previn said we speak in a kind of shorthand each of us understands how the other thinks and writes it is kind of like working and writing with an intimate stranger
1: That's really good.
0: So his present wife, I'm not sure who that was at the time, but it wasn't Mia Farrow by that point, asked me to be godmother to their child, and that brought us back together. To continue the vitriol would negate the years of terrificness we had. Now we intend to write more songs together.
3: Oh, well,
1: that's
0: lovely. Oh. So there you go.
1: So you've told us about a bunch of different things she's worked on, and it's—it's. It's, she sounds almost like a polygoth. Like that, polygoth, that's not the word, is it? a multi-goth
0: yes polygoth what is polygoth do they like experiment with different forms of gothicness
2: (laughs) yeah weathering heights to dracula yeah (laughs) okay i like it
1: um well she sounds multi-talented if I can say that. So what about her work
0: have you found most inspiring? Um, I'll just not quite answer that point and revisit the issue of her being a polymath. Although she obviously works on a lot of stuff, essentially, she was first and foremost a lyricist, which I also find quite interesting because that's a very narrow category. Very few people would be celebrated primarily for that. What do I find inspiring about her? I like the way that her songs are direct and confessional but without being self-indulgent. I like the way she manages to talk about very dark subjects in a very humorous way. Mm. I think it's quite hard to combine humor with meaningful music. She really manages it. Her tunes are great they feel really classic like you'll listen to one and think how do oh, I never heard this before and then it'll get stuck in your head and she just has an amazing uh, facility with language as well kind of reminds me a bit of someone like Yates who I remember one of my professors at university said just had this amazing way with rhyme And it's a similar thing like it's just she is absolutely in control of it yeah I would totally recommend listening and reading at the same time because you'll get so much out of it brilliant and also, you can revisit it. I mean, poor Ruben, he's heard me play, because I have a couple of albums on vinyl, and he's heard me play those over and over and over again this week. But even he, I don't think he's getting bored of them because there's just, they're so. so much to mine in there.
1: Sophie, you've done an amazing job kind of outlining her career. Can you tell me what you think her influence has been on music and why we should know about who she is?
0: I think that's actually really hard to summarize. There's something quite slippery about her career and her music. If you start researching her on the internet, you'll get lots of different dates being thrown up for the, the same songs or the same songs occurring on lots of different albums. And actually, that was something she obviously was doing deliberately to some extent. There are songs that appear on more more than one album, and she'll revisit it in a different way. She'll record, for example, her song Mary C. Brown and the Hollywood Sign actually features on Mythical Kings and Iguanas, which was 1971. (laughs) And then in 72, she releases an album called Mary C. Brown and the Hollywood Sign, which is her kind of expanding on that theme. And it's a whole album full of songs about Hollywood misfits and the recordings of each of them. Recording of that song on both albums is quite different.
1: Did you just say her, one of her albums is called mythical Kings and iguanas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this is my new favorite oh, wow. album title of all time.
0: It, that particular song was about the kind of, the sort of, like faux ridiculous spiritualism that was big at the time and she kind of laughs at it quite gently um, or maybe not so gently (laughs) 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 and interestingly musically there was the same kind of slipperiness which I think is often I mean we've found as a band is often seen as quite a bad thing to not be easily pin downable in terms of genre but I don't think it's a problem for Dory Previn like she well maybe it is in terms of the fact that she hasn't been remembered because it's I mean you said you thought her was quite folky but I can see why you would say that but you can associate it with almost any genre. I mean, in in the um, the album, Mary C. Brown, The Hollywood Sign, there's lots of gospel choirs singing and she goes kind of mental on it. But then in other albums, she has this very sweet, clear voice. And the New York Times actually praised her songs for their almost complete avoidance of specific stylistic identity, which kind of brings me on to the point that her she was actually very critically acclaimed in her time. She just hasn't sort of been remembered as such. So I think she stayed with a lot of people in a very quiet, kind of intimate way. And I've started doing some digging around and talking to other singer songwriters writers i know the reason i actually even discovered dory previn in the first place was because a singer songwriter called lucy Kruger, who plays in a band called lucy Kruger and the lost boys was well she was staying with me last year um she was touring with her band medicine boy at the time you know after the show we uh we were back at our flat and drinking beer and (laughs) having a nice old evening this sounds like i'm describing an orgy there was no orgy (laughs) there was don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should say, it's also Lucy's birthday today. So happy birthday, Lucy, if you listen. Oh. And she was digging through this pile of records that I'd inherited from my sister. And so thank you, Noni, for <laughs> donating the records and sparking this whole thing off. And she she picked up the Story Previn record that I, can't, I couldn't even remember that it had been in there. And she said, oh, I love this singer, and put her on. And she started describing what she liked so much about her lyrics. And she said something about how she kind of, like, lulls you into a sense of security and then sticks the knife in. Ooh. And it, yeah, that feels exactly like how she operates. Like she was just hidden in my record collection. I didn't even know she was there. And then it took another singer-songwriter to pull her out and say, you know, you need to listen to this. A uh, singer-songwriter in Edinburgh that I know uh, Elliott, um, to date, because it occurred to me, Faith might have been quite influenced by Dory because of, again, the sort of confessional element. And lo and behold, I was right. Um, Faith is a big Dory fan. And they said... I have always admired the simplistic storytelling element in her songs. They feel almost like parables or fairy tales, except the narratives are based on stuff like committing suicide off the Hollywood sign or being trapped in an attic while your abusive father incessantly plays the clarinet. And despite the extremity of these ideas, her voice is so consistent and conclusive, so it allows you to access those stories in a soft, sympathetic way, which I think is spot on. So thank you very much, Faith, for that. That is a
1: beautiful description.
0: So uh, so <laughs> Faith and I are going to put on a night about... Yeah, tribute night for Dory Previn one okay, day. I and no one will come to it. It would be great. I'll
1: let <laughs> everyone know. So if they're in Edinburgh, they can
0: come. Yeah. And, and everyone will be like, Dory Previn, who's she? No, nah, sorry, right. <laughs> This is, of course, assuming we're ever let out the head.
1: Fingers crossed. Yeah. So, Sophie, is there any last things you want to leave us with about Dory Previn?
0: So I'm going to quote a line from one of her songs that I really like, which suggests that she probably was a woman of the world. This is from Angels and Devils the following day, which is from the album Mythical Kings and Iguanas. Loved I two men equally well, though they were different as heaven and hell. One was an artist, one drove a truck, one would make love, the other would fuck. Each treated me the way he knew best, one held me lightly, one bruised my breast. And I responded on two different levels, like children reacting to angels and devils. One was a poet who sang and read verse, one was a peasant who drank and who cursed. Before you decide who's cruel and who's kind, let me explain what I felt in my heart and my mind. The artist was tender but suffered from guilt, making him sorry the following day, and he made me guilty the very same way, in his bed on the following day. The other would take me and feel no remorse, he'd wake with a smile in the bed where we lay, and he made me smile in the very same way, in his bed on the following day." The blow to my soul by fear and taboos cut deeper far than a bodily bruise. And the one who was gentle hurt me much more than the one who was rough and made love on the floor. That's beautiful. That gave me chills when you're reading it out. That worked really well. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? And I think it's so true as yeah. well.
1: I, I'm just, I'm so excited about this whole like mythical kings and iguanas thing. I'm I'm going to go <laughs> buy this immediately as soon as we're finished recording. Shall we? I don't know really know how to transition from like that to Carol King, but I'm sure we can find some way to do it. Going from one underrated lyricist to one potentially... Not well-known as she should be bass
2: player. Definitely not as well-known as she should be, yeah.
1: Cool. Willa, take us away.
2: All right. So, Carol Kaye, and that's K with an E at the end, in case anybody wants to Google her. K-A-Y-E is her last name. So, she was born in Everett, Washington, On March 24th, 1935. Both of her parents are musicians. I don't know what they played. And on Wikipedia, it claims that her dad was violent towards her. So she eventually persuaded her mother to break up with him. According to her, her, her father was the rogue and her mother was the church lady. And when they didn't fight, they sat down and played music. So she sort of learned at an early age... That music, as far as she was concerned, would make things better. She, um, at the age of 13, was working, sort of cleaning and just doing odd jobs. And a friend of hers introduced her to a steel guitar salesman who sold her a steel guitar and some lessons for a whopping $10. What year is this, do you know? It would have been 13 years after 1935. Can anyone do math? Forty-eight. No. This is is why
1: Ash is needed. She's always so good. (laughs) I think I think that's nineteen (laughs) forty-eight. Thank you.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Um, She found a teacher who was named um, Horace Hatchett. He was apparently a graduate of the Eastman School of Music, which sounds vaguely familiar to me, but I don't know anything about it myself. And he saw her potential and helped her pick up local work in the Long Beach area. So there's some movement there. Um, So she was playing gigs, but she was also teaching. She started with one booking a week when she was still only 14 and sort of gained acceptance among the local musicians in the area and then started playing regularly at a variety of dances, parties, and nightclubs in the South Bay. That's amazing. Definitely a young starter. Yeah. Can you imagine being able to make money playing music when you're 14? No. Great.
0: (laughs) Great. More money than he's ever made since playing church organ when he was thirteen. Or yeah,
2: four. actually, I played the bagpipes at funerals when I was that age, and that was very good pay for a fourteen-year-old. Come <laughs> to think
1: of it, so. how wait, wait, how much do they make as? How much do you make as a church organist? Like, is is this a racket that we don't know about?
0: I think he made something like seventy-five pounds a service, and this was back in you know the eighteen nineties or whatever. So. Just
2: like regular services, not a big deal ones.
0: Uh, yeah, just regular services.
2: Dang. Yeah. After high school. Carol played with the Henry Buss Orchestra, and so she traveled around the US playing dances and other events and ended up marrying the band's string bass player, not, not electric guitar bass player and taking his last name his name was al k and um, they had a son and daughter eventually carol k decided that she actually would like to see her children more so she left the band before it collapsed the band collapsed because the titular henry Bus, i believe had a heart attack at an undertaker's conference oh. and so that was the end of the band <laughs> oh. i shouldn't be laughing um in 1957 carol k divorced al k all I can find for reasons for this, it was partly due to the age difference. He was a lot older. And also, Al had a drinking problem. Huh. So I'm much older, Willa. I don't much older? Know. <laughs>
0: for some reason, I failed to look that up.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that left
2: Carol with two kids to support and her mother as well. So, what she did was she started a day job as a high-speed technical typist at a place called Bendix and that was just to keep steady money coming in but at night she would play jazz clubs and again this is in the sort of Long Beach area. From her website she says she played and taught guitar professionally played bebop jazz guitar in dozens of nightclubs oh around Los Angeles with top groups and that included Bob Neal's jazz group with Jack Sheldon backing Lenny Bruce which is cool hey. because we've all watched <laughs> Mrs. Maisel which we will get to a bit further on as well. She really really loved the jazz scene and how um, you had black and white people just working together playing jazz and just they did not give a fuck about skin color. They were all just really good musicians that were there. And I, I found a great interview with her on YouTube that's in, like over an hour long actually and she says that when the race riot started in the 60s she actually had to do this double take. She was like oh my god a bunch of my friends are black and this is going to affect them but they were just also focused on the music. They didn't even think about it at the time. When she was playing in the, the jazz clubs it was what she really loved but she really did not like how Having a day job, I think we can all sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. But at one point, producer Bumps Blackwell. Wait, wait, can uh, you heard you... her playing. Sorry, M- M- that name Bumps, again? Bumps Blackwell. Bumps Blackwell. <laughs> Bumps Blackwell. <Yep>. Wow. <laughs> he heard her playing guitar and said, Hey, would you like to come try doing a studio well, session? Imagine for if
0: me? you were friends with him and it'd be bump Will Abuse and Bumps Blackwell. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> blackwell will abuse.
2: that could be a you could name a band after him the bumps the, Bump blackwell. <laughs> the uh, producer bumps blackwell heard carol playing in la and approached her and asked her if she would like to play guitar for a studio session with him for an up-and-coming singer named sam cook oh you guys heard of yes him? Yeah. So she got to play on his A Take on Summertime and also Wonderful World. I listened
1: to these yesterday on YouTube. Well. They
2: were amazing. Yes. Excellent. Do you think that you do Shy Baldwin is based on? Oh, you know, that's a good point. It might be. Maybe. Let's see, Oh, so she had misgivings about moving to studio work because she loved jazz so much. But she really she discovered that she could get much better pay for it. And because she had the kids to think about. That was sort of the deciding factor in her decision to stick with working as a session musician, which is what they were called. Somewhere in here, she was married again. And I'm not sure if she had another child because in the interview, she mentioned having another kid. But if you look up the number of children that she has, it says two living children. So I know one of them has died of cancer, mm. um, the, one of the daughters. And I'm not sure if there was a third one and something happened or what, what the situation is there. But I think I didn't really want to dig too much because, because it felt kind of disrespectful. So her career, she started out playing guitar, obviously her work began to lead to additional offers from other well-known producers and arrangers. So she worked with, um, Bob Keen, who I believe produced La Bamba by Richie Valens. La Bamba. Which I actually heard until I started researching La Bamba, yeah. <laughs> so that's her playing guitar on that.
0: Also, in like da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that yeah. one. I think so, yeah. That
2: was also yeah. a really that's, that's
1: a exciting moment because it was like one of the first times um, Latino-like star was recording a really big hit in the US. So that's also quite a good racial yeah. moment that she was a part she of. She loves...
2: Um, latino music i think she was talking about how great it is because it has all these different rhythms that we hadn't really considered so much in in the white united states so um she also played on let's dance by chris montez which is not one i've heard and pink shoelaces by dodie stevens incidentally speaking of other things that she played guitar on although this was later she played guitar on frank zappa's album freak out
0: really entertaining yeah when you say guitar do you mean like six string guitar yeah not bass guitar
2: no, no. We're about to get on to that. So she started okay. playing bass in 1963 when um, the bassist didn't show up for a record date at Capitol Records, and they were like, "Hey, you can play stringy things with necks. You want to give this a shot?" And wait, wait, wait. Um, Interestingly, so they... she she picked it up
1: during a recording session.
2: Yeah, yeah. Holy fuck! They just needed a, a bass guitar player, and she would already have known the the four strings needed. So um, she she just did it. She's amazing, though. I'll I'll, I'll talk about. How amazingly natural she is at playing, and yeah, that was her start with the bass. And they specify Fender bass because at that point Fender was the only company, as far as I can tell, that had actually started making electric bass guitars, and everybody else followed suit fairly quickly. Um, but they always specify Fender bass to mean electric bass guitar oh. in, in the older documents. Yeah, so she was she got um, known as being a very good session bass player. And I have this bit from an interview that she did with louder sound and she says, it was busy. I do two, two, three, and four dates a day. A date was three hours. So there'd be something from 10 AM to 1 PM and something from two to five. And then we'd have a session from eight to 11 at night between six and seven we'd squeeze in a commercial or something that meant you didn't go home for dinner with the kids and later on she started doing film work as well which usually started at 9 a.m so she'd have these really early mornings and very late nights as well she says they drank lots and lots of coffee and usually the studio musicians were running on about five hours of sleep a night so that's pretty cool
0: not cool <laughs> oh, it's so
2: romantic guys guys caffeine is not that good for you just you know <laughs> i had four cups of coffee today We need to talk about this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I don't usually have that many, though. It's just because of the lockdown. (laughs) So this is um, from another article in New York Magazine. It says, um, by 1969, Kay was exhausted. She was sick of drinking multiple cups of bad coffee every day. And to her, the music started to sound like cardboard. And things were um, sort of rough at home as well. Because her first husband, she found out that he had died. And also her house was robbed. And she got into a car accident on the way to the funeral. This was all in the space of two weeks and then the Charles Manson murder started happening. Oh God. She had actually met him with Brian Wilson of The Beach Boys at one point. So that's kind of startling, obviously. So the musicians all started pulling their names out of the union books because they had been part of the part of the union. In terms of the rest of her career, she sort of she started to to move away from session recording at that point and just sort of key things back a bit. She still worked in cinema and in TV shows, and I'll get to which one she played on, because that's quite interesting as well. In the early 1970s, she was still doing a bit of touring with um, people like Joe Pass um, and the Hampton Hawes, whom I am afraid I'm not familiar with myself. And she played on Barbara Streisand's single, The Way We Were, continued to play. However, she was involved in a car accident, which messed up her her hands a little bit unfortunately Mm. so she could only play sporadically until that was healed after she underwent corrective surgery to fix the injuries and i think this is very interesting she collaborated with fender to produce a lighter version of the precision base that did not strain her back as much which i would love to know more about because i have a fender precision base and it's really really heavy (laughs)
0: Yeah, I want to know more about this. <laughs> <laughs> Permanent injuries from playing the Rickenbacker. Yeah. I think it's
2: really
1: cool that like she's prestigious enough that Fender's like, okay, what do you want us to do? How can we help?
2: Yeah, although I feel like it should have happened before the 1994. But... There you go. It is good that it did happen eventually. Yeah. And if you go to her website now, she is now teaching via Skype, and she appears at seminars. And she has written a book that it looks like it's kind of a combination of a memoir um, slash autobiography, but also instructional book. So I might check that out um, because it would have been things to do on lockdown. Absolutely. And she's now eighty-four and living in California. So that's her. That's her life and career. So there are two things you did not mention.
1: Which I just oh. want to highlight because they were the the two bits that made me so happy as I was, you know, knocking back old fashions yesterday and listening to a bunch of music. <laughs> is number one, she worked with the Beach Boys on Pet Sounds, which mm-hmm. I just find delightful. And the second is she worked with Nancy Sinatra on one of mm-hmm. my right.
0: she's one of my favorite, favorite,
1: most dearest karaoke songs. These boots are made for walking.
0: Yes. She played the bass yes, in that. She did. Oh my god. Isn't that in awesome? case everybody everybody will have heard her play bass.
2: Yeah, that's what I was that's what I mean. Like everybody's heard The Beach Boys, everybody has heard Boots. Everybody's heard Sunny and Cher. She was she
0: but was the bass a bass player on The Beat Goes yes. On. Isn't that um, like there, the doom 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 doom. That's bass, there's a there? string
2: bass, but there's also um, an electric bass. Mm-hmm. And get this. So I'm really glad you asked that question, Sarah. <laughs> so that um The Beat Goes On when they first heard it, all the studio musicians were like, oh, God, because it's literally one chord. And the electric bass player was just just playing the root chord, just going like dun, dun, dun. It was really, really boring. It even would have bored me. And I've only been playing bass for two years. But even I would have been bored doing that. And the song just wasn't working. There's also an excellent quote from Carol Kaye because she's such an amazing musician that she will sort of casually slag off. Well, not slag off, but she'll discuss other musicians in this way. She so what she said about this recording session is when Cher first sang, she wasn't that good. Of course, Sonny couldn't sing at all, <laughs> but he knew it and he'd kid himself about it all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, so she was, she was that good. And what she did was she just took the baseline and completely changed it to be the one that we know and love so if you listen to the beat goes on keep an ear out for the electric bass there other people that she's worked with include Phil Spector before he went crazy obviously the Beach that's Boys um, Ray Charles, Simon and Garfunkel that's her on Scarborough <gasps> Fair I didn't know that The Monkeys whom I don't know, Joe Cocker you don't know the Monkeys? well I've heard of them, I, I'm sure I've heard at least their most famous song yeah what, what's their most famous song?
0: Um, goodbye Sleepy Jean whatever's good, Daydream, Daydream Believer, Believer. I'm a Believer. And that That's, one, and I'm a Believer.
2: I thought that was Smash Mouth. I'm a Believer? You thought that was Smash Mouth? Because it's on the Shrek soundtrack. I just got confused. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and wait, well, hey, were the monkeys. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't recognize those. But she recorded with them, although later on, I think she, she was not so keen on their music. I believe she was one of the ones that she thought.
0: They were basically the first awkward. boy bands. They were super cheesy. They had a TV oh, show. I used to watch I them when I was little. I loved it. The
2: Precursor to One Direction and like in sync
0: when it was, I have to say, yeah, basically, better? but it was re screened. I have to say, I'm not that old, I wasn't this wasn't like in the 60s, <laughs> so, but they had it on TV in the 90s. If you, oh, it, it
2: would be so cool if you'd been around it.
0: Cheer up, Sleepy Jean, Sorry, <clears throat> thank you. That's good.
2: Okay, so yeah, so she also worked with Joe Cocker, Sam Cooke, as we already know, Barbara Streisand, as we heard, Nancy Sinatra, of course, the Supremes. And she was, you'll like this. She, Glenn Campbell was also a studio musician, but obviously he became a well-known singer in his own right. And she, it was her playing the bass on Wichita alignment.
0: Whoa. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, I just had a little meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm like totally overloaded. Witch to Lime Man is probably my single most favorite. Well, it's one of my single most favorite songs of all time. Cool. <laughs> I knew you would like that. And she yeah.
2: like she loves Glenn Campbell. They're, they sound sounds like they're
0: really good friends. So
2: that story makes me happy. Yeah. And yeah, and then obviously Sonny and Cher and Lou Rawl and Frank Zappa. And that's not everybody. Like, she is just everywhere. So looking at her TV and film career, she worked on the scores for films Such as In the Heat of the Night, The Pawnbroker, The Thomas Crown Affair, In Cold Blood, The Long Goodbye, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And that's not all of them, there's certainly other ones. She played bass on Steven Spielberg's first feature film. Apparently, there's a really large 18-wheeler truck in it, and she provided the bass line for the truck. (laughs) right yeah and she also played um scores for tv shows so some of the ones you will definitely have heard of she was on the themes of mash Uh, yes mission impossible the show yeah hawaii 5-0 the brady bunch wonder woman which i only included because sophie loves wonder woman um i think the original tv show was a bit shit but she was on the score (laughs) for that and the adams family oh good she's Not as well known as she should be, but she's become much more well known recently. So there was a documentary released in 2008 called The Wrecking Crew, which is all about the studio musicians of the 60s who played on all these gigantic hits, Um, but she actually doesn't like it. She says it was a ego trip for the drummer Hal Blaine and that he trashed a bunch bunch of her friends and jazz players and stuff like that. So she says viewers were lied to and it's not right. They were given the wrong idea about studio musicians who are some of the most wonderful people in the world. He slandered jazz guys that were terrific people, just because they did film work.
0: And oh. I find this out uh, really interesting actually because there's a lot of mythology, isn't there, about musicians having to be difficult to work with and having to be egos and having to be, and it's actually not true. But It's almost like the people that are decent to work with get looked over
2: yeah yeah and she is the most practical sounding person i have ever witnessed speaking if you if you watch her interviews she's just very down to earth and smart and just very much a get the job done kind of person which Mm. i really like about her um she was always or is now anyway being asked about how it was to be a woman working in such a male-dominated scene. And she says that whenever some wise guy, male musician would say, hey, that's pretty good for a woman, she would just say, well, that's pretty good for a man too. So she just handled it. If they started swearing, she says she would swear back at them and she says she's not proud of it, but it got the job done. (laughs)
0: Amazing.
2: So, uh, yeah, that's about her. Now, I know that Sophie wanted to address Mrs. Maisel. Mm. The only reason <laughs> I've
1: actually heard about her is because I recently watched all of Mrs. Maisel, and she appears in season two and is just phenomenal in the TV show.
2: So it's very interesting. Um, I went into this with high hopes because I love Mrs. Maisel, and I thought it was great that they had included a character based on Carol Kay. I think they call that character carol Keene, ah. but <laughs> she was uh did, uh did an interview with the new york post regarding the, the third season of mrs mazel and what she said was <clears throat> it's a hollywood silly fluff piece that has nothing to do with me or my history it took a few things out of my book and created a character that's not even me at all a lot of people are saying that must be you i love it but i am not a cartoon and my life is not a joke Nobody contacted me. I didn't know a thing about it. I thought that was pretty bad, kind of like Flander. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. So that's too bad. But I think it's partly because she wants to be known for her work on the base, and they definitely tried to sort of sexualize that character more in the yeah, Mrs. Maisel we, show. Yes, because we were running about the one night stand. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So. Um, Great
1: advice. Maybe you know. wish they'd given it to somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we know the bit? Can I? Can I just elucidate the bit we're talking about, which is mm-hmm. when the Carol Keane character gives Midge advice on how to have a one-night stand whilst on tour. So we think this has probably got nothing to do with Carol Kay whatsoever then, do we?
2: Yeah, because um, it sounds like she sort of played it quite straight, relatively speaking. Yeah.
1: However, if you are looking for advice on how to conduct one-night stands while on tour, I think going and watching Mrs. Maesle is is not a bad shout. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs>
2: From personal experience? Uh, No, no, oh. Yeah, not so far.
0: <laughs> I not comment. Can't possibly comment.
2: Um, is
1: there anything that you want to leave us with? Do you have a salacious moment, or a quote, or a song?
2: Yes, I've got several things. None of them particularly salacious, but I'm very excited about all awesome. of them. So. <laughs> So the most salacious she got was um, in reference to the sort of studio work and the five-hour nights of sleep. They would just get so exhausted that oh, people would just like put their heads down on their guitar cases and grab a quick shut-eye. So she joked um, to New York Magazine uh, that sh- she would see the wives of her fellow musicians show up at the studio and she'd say, I slept with your husband today. Because <laughs> she had, literally. <laughs> yeah. I bet they but, loved that. <laughs> oh, yes. And the thing is, she was... A really good-looking woman, um, going looking at the photos of her in the 60s. The woman that they got to play her on, Mrs. Maisel, is not nearly as attractive, no offense to her, as the actual Carol Kay. Um, She had the best dresses, and there's an excellent photo of her playing, and she's wearing a leopard print jumpsuit, which I love. I need.
0: I did actually, I bought three glasses yesterday, mainly inspired by, well, again, Mrs. Maisel, but by her character on that.
2: Yep. Mm -hmm. She does have those. They are great. Yeah. A lot of class there um one thing um as i said um, she, I think she was like pretty well behaved sexually speaking and this is especially apparent when she was a teenager and she was playing in the uh high class strip club she was she, this is back when she was still playing jazz and she had never seen a naked woman before so she said when they started taking off their clothes like she could barely keep on playing <laughs> <laughs> that's quite cute <laughs> Um, Oh, that's adorable! (laughs) Yeah, and then in the the very long interview that I watched, uh, they ask her what her views are on how pop music is presented these days, with the the stage show and the crazy costumes and stuff. I really like her answer because what she said was Lena Horne, who I did have to Google, but she was a singer and actress from the golden age of Hollywood. She said Lena Horne could get up and sing, dressed from here, and she pointed at her neck to her toes, and she would move slightly, very slightly, and the guys would get hot from that. They didn't need Viagra back in the forties. <laughs> <That's> brilliant. <laughs> so that's quite yeah, that's the thing. And then my very favorite quote from her is um, is this last one. So she says, "A note doesn't have to have sex to it. You either play it good or you don't. Some people can't handle that, especially men. They want to think that it was the woman who played the bass because of the sexual thing. But when you hear somebody with balls, that's me. <laughs> and I would encourage anybody." especially if you play bass, but really anybody to like look up her interview because she plays the bass on it some as well. And it's just a delight to watch her playing because it obviously all comes so easily to her and she's doing it without thinking, but she can also explain all the music theory behind everything, which is the
0: best just- Is this is it online? Is it- um...
2: Yeah, it's on YouTube. Just um, go to YouTube and put in Carol Kay full length interview. I can't wait <laughs> to watch the
1: entirety of this interview with Carol Kane, and also I'm gonna go and listen to Mythical Kings and Iguanas. So Mythical those are both Kings very exciting things on my to-do list. So we're gonna take a slightly sidestep now, and I wanted to talk to both of you, amazingly talented women, about Storm the Palace. So first, can you tell me where did you come up with the name Storm the Palace?
0: Yeah, Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) The name predates um, Willow's time in the band. It actually, it taps into a few different things. At the time, I was living in this rambling Edwardian house in London with about 12 other people. Well, actually, it was five well, technically four. For legal reasons maybe, just don't include this, but <laughs> don't know anyone who's still there. Anyway, we called it The Palace, um, because it was big, a lot bigger than most houses in London, but yeah, I hasten to add there was a lot of us in there. And it was also kind of in the shadow of Alexandra Palace, and I've been watching Sophia Coppola's film, Marie Antoinette. Yeah, something about that kind of got to me, and um, well, actually our band name, it started off as Duchess, but then we decided to change it because we couldn't really compete with the Duchess of Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> and And um, so I was sort of actively looking for a new band name and I I wrote a song called Storm the Palace which tapped into all these things that we've been talking about and then eventually that just became the band name and I think I'd always kind of like, I've always been quite interested in cycles of destruction and renewal and um, the idea of like, I don't know these big parties where everything in the house gets trashed but somehow the atmosphere gets refreshed
1: I've always kind of assumed it had to do with the the storming of the Winter Palace during the Russian Revolution just because I have definitely like seen you in a big fur hat, like charging around, and I can just imagine you yeah, leading, a big
0: thing about like that kind of imagery. Yeah, the,
1: the leading all the the, the fishwives and peasant women, <laughs> like to storm the the palace against the czar.
0: It's not explicitly about that, but it is, I suppose, in the sense that, like the whole concept of storming the palace, I quite I say quite like. <laughs> I don't actively advocate destruction, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah so that's probably about as much as I can explain it really. and I kind of liked the the imagery that went with it, I guess so
1: yeah, so your most recent album is Delicious Monster, which is mm-hmm. probably I was gonna say top ten, but I think probably top five favorite albums because I'm a massive fan. so I wanted to Excellent. ask you what kind of inspired you on this album, and then maybe we can pick one of my favorite songs to talk about.
0: Um, well, this album was written... Most of the songs in it were written after I moved back to Edinburgh um, about three and a half years ago. I'd settled into kind of domestic life with bandmate Reuben and... Unlike the first album, it's much more about domestic space. It's turned out to be weirdly kind of prescient for what's going <laughs> on right now. And I guess it kind of explores the the way that home can be the best and the worst place in the world. It's not entirely set in the home, but mostly. Um, and Willa's written, wrote some of the lyrics on it as well. So I'll ask her if she has anything to add.
2: I would agree with everything that you've said so far. Yeah. I'm trying to remember which songs I wrote the lyrics for. Oh, yeah. Family Ties. Yeah, definitely the way you interact with family members, especially as they're getting older had some influence on the lyrics that I wrote and also finding yourself in a situation that hasn't necessarily turned out as you had imagined it would, but being there nonetheless and unable to leave as well.
1: That is heavy stuff, especially since we're all stuck in quarantine Mm. right now.
2: Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know it sounds a lot worse. Like I'm actually quite happy with my, my situation.
1: Can we talk about two songs? While I have you as a semi captive audience under lockdown, the first I want to talk about, just because it's my favorite and this is really all about me, is fractal. I can't even say it. Fractal. Pterodactyl. Fractal. Fra... Fuck. Fractal
0: pterodactyl. <laughs> Can
1: we talk about fractal
0: pterodactyl, please? Please. Yes. please send me the audio clip of you just trying to pair that. Oh. Please. I'm going to make it like a remix or something. <laughs> Well, it's about <laughs> I'll quote. Will I hear? It's it's about dinosaurs and diabetes. Um, so I have type one diabetes, which is a very unrock and roll thing to have. Um, and so I haven't really tried to talk about it in my songs before, but I decided it was time. And i had been watching a lot of. This was kind of written in my first year back in Edinburgh, and I was a bit depressed at the time, and um, generally I, you know, suffer from quite low energy levels, and been spending a lot of time lying on the sofa watching things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer (gasps) or um, Game of Thrones and kind of like watching a lot, you know, watching any program I could get my hands on that had some kind of superpowered female in it. And I was just thinking how ironic it was that I was just kind of lying there on the sofa whilst like Buffy kicked vampire ass. And then I thought, well, she's killing demons, so I don't have to or something. (laughs) So then I I wanted to write this song that was like talking about um, a medical condition, or a disability or whatever you want to call it, as you know, like as a sort of crappy superpower, really. <laughs> and explore that kind of the narrative of like the child that's set apart and told that it's gonna be different and have different powers.
2: That's a lot of pressure though. I'm
1: really glad I'm not one of those chosen ones. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sophie, for explaining that. If you guys stick around to the very end of the episode, they have graciously agreed to let me play the song, so I hope you guys will enjoy it as much as I do. Now, the second song I wanted to talk to you about because it is something that everyone here will have heard because it is our theme tune is "Lovely White Sofa."
0: "Lovely White Sofa" is sort of as close to as I've ever got to writing a f- song about feminism. I guess we wrote um... it drunk in my friend. <gasps> you did. We did. well I sort of started thinking about it in terms of like having a lot of sitting around and having a lot of chats with my female friends about how we kind of wanted to like be more free and express ourselves and how we just couldn't do it (laughs) I guess it was thinking about ways that that women kind of internally repress themselves. And I'm not blaming, you know, it's about structural inequality, essentially. You know, I'm not saying that a lot of people say, oh, women are to blame. They should just go out and do stuff. And it's like, it's more like the kind of sort of psychological limitations that stop us even getting to that point.
1: I think when you put it like that, I can't think of a more perfect theme tune for the podcast.
0: And I am so grateful.
1: Do you guys have a favorite line from that song?
0: I like the line about, we wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. We haven't done our homework yet. <laughs>
1: yeah that's really good I, I think my favorite is the one at the end where it's like um he doesn't do anything for her that she couldn't order online
3: <laughs> especially i think
1: during the quarantine and lockdown that feels like really prescient yeah. right now <laughs> yeah. right. So you know what sarah's been out to for the last three weeks <laughs> yeah. great do you is there anything else you guys want to say
0: just that we are absolutely delighted to be featured as your theme tune. I think every time I listen to your podcast, I am like, oh, it's fucking great, blah blah blah. And then our song comes on, it then I'm like, what? Oh my god, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Song? It's <laughs> always <time>. so shocking. <laughs> Do
1: you guys have anything you want to plug?
0: You should watch our video. Uh, all by myself, isolation.
1: <laughs> it is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Where can people find you? Where can people find your video?
0: Um, I believe if you Google Storm the Palace, we will come up. Our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash palace sounds. Is it? That's a very good question. (laughs) I would look that up. (laughs) It's facebook.com forward slash Storm the Palace bands. That's it. But I think you would find us if you just search for us, Storm the Palace. Um, There is another band called Storm the Palace in Canada who do covers of 80s and 90s guitar songs. We're not them. Although they sound quite fun. I'd quite like to see them. We should do a double show in the
2: That palace. would be
0: amazing. Storm the Palace Square. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be great. And yeah, basically, but we would ho- harshly encourage everyone to go straight to our Bandcamp page, which you can get to just by typing in stormthepalace.net because that's where all our music is. And I feel like in this day of social media and streaming and blah, 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 and blah, 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 like people don't focus enough on the actual music because that's that's essentially what we do
1: I cannot recommend it warmly enough I also am gonna do a shout out to your music video for Clive which is about a murderous (laughs) plant and Everyone needs to go watch that immediately. I had so much fun making that. Yeah, it's it, it. I could tell you guys had so much fun making that. I love the the seventies food as well. Like the dinner party, it's just it's fab.
0: That shopping cryptolidal little with something. I <laughs> <was> something <I>
3: <laughs> <was>. <laughs> how
0: did you like looking at all our groceries on the conveyor? How did you <laughs> find the recipes? We made most of them up.
1: <laughs> but they look so like authentically horrifically seventies. Well,
0: there's this great Twitter account called Seventies Dinner Party that i had been studying. (laughs) I kind of got a sense for the aesthetic and I was just like saying to everyone right things that look ridiculous don't worry about what they taste like in fact the more horrendous the better awesome
1: well Willa and Sophie thank you so freaking much for joining me for this delightful mini sound I can't wait to go re-listen to Delicious Monster now and I very much look forward to coming up to Edinburgh and seeing you guys perform live as soon as we're all allowed out of our houses.
3: How's that? Yeah.
0: Come straight up here. Don't do anything else. Like, just, just run straight out the house. The How
1: about here. I just, I take the dog and I just like, I don't know, Take the walk, dog. walk to Edinburgh.
0: <laughs> or commandeer, like, just like highway rob a sports car.
2: Mad Max is supposed to happen anyway. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It has to be red, though.
1: Red, or I'm not doing it. Sorry. <laughs> to match your yeah, bow and your lipstick. Red. Obviously.
0: Yes, exactly. Red, yeah. open top sports car, and Callie sitting in the passenger seat with her ears flapping oh, in the wind. Oh,
1: she would love that. Well, I hope that the two of you have a delightful rest of your Sunday afternoon and everyone listening, wherever and whenever you are. This has been a delight, and we will be back in a couple of weeks.
2: Bye. Thanks for having us. Bye.
0: Bye. <laughs>
3: Well, I mostly stared into space. I don't have no superpowers. I'm just a girl who's wrestling with the elves. If I had dragon flights, I would surely dominate the skies. I'd that. will she have six-fold strength and kill demons by cutting off their heads tell me doctor how does this